Hello and welcome to episode 19 of Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase, and in this episode, I spoke with Scott Nine of the Institute for Democratic Education in America, or IDEA. Scott and I talked about A Year at Mission Hill, an online web series that IDEA is helping to organize a ton of partner organizations around. The series at ayearatmissionhill.com is 10 parts documenting a year in the life of a school in Boston. It's fantastic, and it really has generated a lot of conversations, as you hear, around the country about what we want our education to be, what we want schools to be, and the role of adults, of children, of community organizations in helping to foster good, sustainable education practices in America. If you want to find Scott on Twitter, he is mscott9, and I suggest that you do, because the work that IDEA is doing and all of their partner organizations is really quite fantastic and uh, I've never spoken with anyone who has such a stake in creating and fostering a positive conversation about education in America. That's it. If you have a cup of coffee handy, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Learning Grounds. Hey, Scott Nine. <laughs> well, hello, Zach Chase. Um, thank you for podcasting today. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm excited about the Learning Grounds podcast. <laughs> uh, nice working in the name. That works nicely. <laughs> yeah, um, I, do so, I, do, I do what I can. Yeah. You're a great guest. Um, so the first question is usually, uh, what have you been learning? Oh, man. Um, throw a dart. I think the one of the potentially more interesting things has been uh, what we've been learning through the year at Mission Hill series, and that kind of comes in two parts. So for folks not familiar, at yearatmissionhill.com, we've been uh, following the story of Mission Hill uh, Public School in Boston, uh, broken up into little chapters uh, basically since the inauguration um, of President Obama and trying to kind of weave a narrative or a story that talks about the life of a school that is, you know, in a, a lot of ways it looks like, um, I don't think any one school should look alike, but it's at least having the kinds of practices and conversations that, that idea is interested in promoting. And, and, and when you say we, sorry to interrupt, but when you say no, we. <laughs> so, uh, for, uh, so idea is the Institute for Democratic Education America. And I have the, the luxury, uh, and responsibility of serving as its executive director. And, uh, we have been playing with a whole bunch of partners, um, and doing this work from, uh, Ashoka to Edutopia to Edweek to Rethinking Schools to the AFT. I mean, it's like 58 partner organizations and I won't list them all off. Um, and, uh, big shout out to Sam Chaltain in this effort. And of course the filmmakers and Mission Hill itself. And, uh, really what we wanted to try to do was to, you know, do some of what you often write and talk about, which is, you know, how do we have a national conversation around some of the kind of key themes we think are, are most important in our different communities. And so we've tried to arc that. Well, the, there's all the learning of the series itself and there's the, the learning of, of life at Mission Hill and the resources people have shared and to see how that happens. But the, the kind of geekier, wonkier part of the learning is really, um, when you, uh, when trying to think about this idea of public narrative and, um, for folks familiar with Marshall Gann's work around kind of how to make a public account, that so much of what's happening in education is we 
don't have a powerful narrative about what we want. There's a lot of reacting going on, and there's a lot of small, amazing examples of successful engagement of young people and teachers and communities in powerful ways. But it doesn't ever, it, it rarely has arced itself in a way where it's getting lots of different people and groups and organizations to play together. And with Mission Hill, what we tried out was something where we gave content away, made the content really rich. But then invited people we'd built relationships with over time and all these different organizations and basically encouraged them to make their own original content, their own pieces to it. And rather than trying to kind of brand it or own it or one organization getting credit for it, everybody kind of cross-connecting with each other's work. And so seeing kind of how to try to get ideas to spread and how to take these stories and spread them because my kind of – you know, I guess belief slash learning is that there are powerful stories waiting to be told across the country that are happening all the time, but we haven't built a strong enough mechanism. Again, my global we being more than just idea, but just I think hundreds of partner communities and organizations and schools that want a different story to get told about education. Um, we have a lot of work to do. And so I'm fascinated by the learning about the mechanism of how to try to use technology to do that, what values hold that work, what messages are effective. So, so it, it, it's interesting in, in looking at how um, the Mission Hill, Hill series has developed and looking at the kind of almost remix culture that has been taking place and kind of saying, here, this is, <laughs> here's some content, go do with it what you will. Um, and, and then that seems to be built around just the assumption that, that people are going to operate in good faith. It's, uh, is that a fair kind of understanding totally. of it? No, I mean, I think it's, it's been amazing to watch like, uh, the Ashoka start empathy folks, like they've got like people making unique original content videos tied to the original content. I mean, there's like little you know, it's amazing to watch the spinoffs and also to see what people do in blogs and um, people are holding community screenings and it is a, a release of, you know, you if you have any work done around, you know, the framing or kind of curatorial choices are made in the film room and in the narration. But beyond that, you're really setting it loose for people to play with and, and giving permission really for everyone to own the content and find ways that it can move their work wherever they're at. So we've got you know people who are working with teacher preparation folks that are building courses around it for the next year. And we've got folks showing it, organizers at the 50th anniversary of civil rights groups in Jackson, Mississippi, showing it as the screening. And um, folks in Little Rock, Arkansas are going to open up the new public library there in the fall with hopefully a couple of chapters and a public conversation about education there. And it's just kind of, it is, I love the remixing. That's the right, totally right. Like people are grabbing onto it, using it, customizing it in ways that, that move their different stories forward. But then in some ways it, it then also gives a kind of connection piece to all of the work. So. Well, and I wonder though, I mean, how you walk the line of, I mean, the, the intent from the beginning and as stated was to have a national conversation uh, about what do we see as the guiding principles of, of really strong and good public schools that are serving children and communities well? All of those pieces also sound like it's not necessarily a national conversation, but, a com but multiple conversations around the nation. It's very localized or regional. <laughs> is, that, is, the, is the vision of success changing as that happens, or 
Are things moving along in a way that's kind of like, oh, this is actually, we didn't know it, but what we'd like to see happen? I mean, I I don't, to me that it, like, you know, everything's local and, and nothing's local, you know? Like, I don't know how you can have a conversation. I don't know how we can or should have a national conversation without paying attention to local. Um, because it's where real kids and parents and families and teachers and lives collide and balance with each other and vice versa. I don't know how you can be thinking about a local conversation unless you're thinking national. The federal policies and engagement at federal levels have never had more impact than they do today on what happens day to day inside of your local school. So it makes sense to me that the series connects those dots and that it is both a Something that I think there was one night where one of the Twitter chats around the series went viral with uh, the help of Ashoka and a couple of inclusion organizations that a particular chapter around inclusion and folks of different needs like kind of popped off that we can have something that both arcs kind of across the country and then also feels like it matters. To me, that's actually the right like we've there's there's a space between those two intersections that is part of the national conversation we have to have if we want to flatten out education into kind of a one size fits all solution we're going to end up with problematic solutions no matter what they are because part of what we i think part of what we have to mix for is is the local into the national how do those elements shake out so to me that's all kind of one big thing and all excitingly happening kind of through the series and how do you i mean that makes sense, and um, I feel like you can't ignore the sense of national education policy, right? I mean, D.C. just passed a kind of ridiculous level of reform. Uh, the committee in Wisconsin today, or I guess over the midnight session last night, um, did some really interesting rejiggering of education budgets and, and private uh, voucher system and all those things. So, I mean, there is a national education conversation to be had, how do you see how do you how do you still let these individual conversations happen that need to be regionally based and locally based and at the same time not lose focus on oh but there are some national things we want to do <laughs> um i mean to me this is the this is the dilemma i don't know that i have an answer i think that i, I wasn't in speaking for the benefits of the local ignoring the national part of what the right. mission hill is trying to do is to, is to say I think it's a couple of step conversation and and I you know I'm I'm fascinated by thinking about um in and one level um how do we have a vision for what the future of education looks like in a way that can hold some tension so that I don't want to be in a conversation that is so simple that it is only about are you for charters or not for charters or are you for uh, standardized tests are not for standardized tests. Um, we have, uh, we're at a time of kind of tremendous national opportunity, which also means kind of challenge and crisis. And so as you've got the kind of shaking of public education and real attacks on teachers and unions, and then you have huge introductions of technology and you've got huge amounts of money rolling through with standards and textbooks and testing, and then you've got real economic challenges like how do we hold and think about the purposes? And we just, we're not having that conversation often, often enough. And where there's real policy nuance and real needs to begin to build a kind of national network that weaves a bunch of different communities and organizations and unions and youth organizations together to be powerful on the national stage. 
part of that is actually having a narrative that's a, a for narrative that is this is what we're about and is not constantly just reacting to whatever the kind of crisis. That doesn't mean there's not a time to react and to resist. Um, but how do we do that? And so what Mission Hill does, I think, in a, in a good way is provoke the conversation about what, what do we mean uh, when we're talking about everybody gets access to powerful learning, right. what do we mean when we say you know quality education is a constitutional right? Like, what's it look like? And it it's not that everything should look like Mission Hill, but it's like we got to get into those weeds and those details. Uh, but at the same time, wouldn't you yeah. say I'm gonna just I'm cutting you yeah, off? Go. That's what no, I'm good. doing. Uh, you, you should. You, you'll have to. Yeah, go. Um, at the same time, I feel like there are pieces in in Mission Hill and that are definitely. At least the themes of each episode uh, are definitely things where I say, well, it's going to look a little different in each school, but yes, this is a thing that I feel like every school should have. I mean, is is that too much of an umbrella for, for what's happening? I mean, like the the idea of caring for the whole child, the idea of teachers as learners, all of those things to me seem like, no, I don't care what your focus is as a school or your organizational structure. These are things that need to happen. No, I think that's mostly right. I mean, obviously, there's some pieces missing. Mission Hill doesn't, you know, it's not. There's not a huge, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a K eight, and there's not tons of technology in the mix. But, right. um, and 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 you know, you could pick any one school and say, oh, you know, like the education for sustainability, or whatever. But yeah, broadly, the the DNA of it, if you if you look at the key pieces of it, and you don't get locked into like. Do we use that language or does our meeting look like that or, you know, whatever. But you say like the broad themes. Yeah, like the broad themes are like how do teachers have autonomous power in thinking? How do you build a culture in which teachers are critically thinking about the environment? How do you build a team environment? How do you think about inclusion in the classroom? How do you think about assessment and evaluation and habits of learning? Um, how do you think about meaningful project-based learning? How do you think about the world of work and relevancy? Like the big arcs and themes, I mean, it, intentionally – uh, and skillfully by the mix, which is really, you know, one speaks to Mission Hill and then two for filmmakers and folks like Sam to narrate, they are trying to pull out those threads. And I do think it offers uh, a point of um, contact for people, like touchstones for people to be thinking and talking about. And, um, you know, in my own experience, like we just recently in Portland, the City Club of Portland is having this gathering around thinking about educational change in Portland and they found chapter nine seeing the learning some of the blog pieces about it as absolutely on point for the kind of conversations they want to have about assessment evaluation in Oregon and that's exactly what we hope for um, and so yeah I think there's a lot that can rest in the narrative and you know hopefully it's something that is, is provocative to people to spur conversation that's 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 what the series is trying to do okay um, so how does doing all of that help to inform <laughs> what you are learning? I mean, as, a, as, an, as an executive director um, and working kind of nationally, how do you, what are you learning from this, from this experience? You personally, not necessarily just the organization. Yeah. Okay, that's um, – well, so on, one of the things watching it all happen um, – is is really around this, you know, the part of me that's kind of a capacity development movement building junkie, like how, you know, uh, how do people release agendas? How do you invite people to release agendas? How do we release an agenda? How do you hold values um, and stand for something and at the same time invite partnership 
and create relationships where people, you know, don't agree on everything, but agree on enough substance to move. And then how do you actually execute with that? Um, and, and then, you know, for me, the deep question is really around like, what impact does it have? Uh, I'd say that the, the theory of change in part is that powerful public narrative and story can, uh, provide the kind of courage that people need to move as well as provide some information they need to actually kind of organize in more powerful ways. And then, you know, part of that question is, is that true? Uh, How does getting a couple of state superintendents of education tweeting about the same chapter of Mission Hill on the same day, uh, does that change anything for a kid in a classroom? And does it change anything for policy efforts? And how do those pieces add up? And so um, for me, it's, you know, one part kind of execution mechanics. And so... Uh, I'm constantly, personally, just learning about the digital world and how to tap it and where I think I'm, I've got some pretty good strategic insights. Uh, leveraging technology is a pursuit, so I'm learning a lot there. And then the other side is how do we think about impact for an organization like IDEA um, or any organization like it? How do we walk away from a linear kind of a logical framework model that says put X in and add Y and get Z and go to this more of this kind of thinking about complexity and change? And so when we are in relationship and we contribute a little bit to a complex thing and something good happens, how do we not take credit for all of it, but how do we notice what small part we had in it so we can think about how to do more of that in a helpful way for things that we care about? And so um, a lot of my learning is in that application. I I feel like I have a pretty good sense of that in a kind of on-the-ground physical organizer way. and thinking about communities in a more local way, but but playing at this kind of meso macro level with kind of larger narratives and and using social media, how do we think about that, capture that in a way that's interesting and helpful to people, and kind of learn from our own learning? Those are the things that are kind of most up for me. So what does that what does that mean for next steps for you? Kind of taking all those pieces of learning, where do you feel like okay, here maybe not necessarily if I had it to do over again, but just here <laughs> in general as I move forward. Here's some key tenets I want to remember. Mm. Um, well, on the, in the positive, the part that seems affirming is the need to continually figure out how to just share and be highly collaborative with the value, you know, with with inside of a kind of value proposition. How much fun it is to get out of the way, and how much can happen if you invite people into partnership and kind of nudge enough. Uh, there's got to be a little bit of structure. So, yeah, I was going to... Uh, so one of the pieces I think is it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting paradox. Uh, there's uh, uh, got to be execution. So there's you got to have enough ability to, to pull off what you're kind of committing to as a potential promise. And so when you tell people submit resources, there's got to be someone to receive them and, and get them up and spin them around. And when you're going to pre-offer people social media templates to spin off an episode, you know, so there's all the kind of execution side. And then there's the, so in a way you're doing a lot of work and you're trying to execute at a high level really. And within that idea of leveraging networks, you're not using the resources of ideas and organization, but you're thinking about the resources of a whole network network. Um, and you're contributing to that, but then you're, um, 
in a way than thinking about how to see impact uh, not within kind of a – so as an example, just to make it more concrete, I'm thinking if I was a listener, I mean, this feels like way out there. Um, uh, Mission Hill, if you, if you Google Mission Hill – uh, or a year at Mission Hill, you'll find the Mission Hill website and then you'll go and the first you know, 15 or 20 results of that are going to be different things. It's going to be Edu- Edweek and Edutopia and, uh, and, 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 and Ashoka and, it's gonna, and it, each one of them is going to customize it in a different way. And I love that result. Like I think that, that the kind of having that kind of impact across a whole bunch of organizations and those organizations impacting each other and sharing resources is exactly the kind of thing we need to do. And well, so and the, it, it oh, seems I, I'm, I'm taking it back to kind of my experiences in the, in the classroom and opening up projects in that way and saying, kind of saying, I'm not sure what the end product is going to be, but here specifically are the pieces of learning that I'm hoping for, right? The, yeah. Like these yeah. are the, um, and I'm not, and I'm not quite certain what you're going to create at the end, but I know that it, that a successful attempt will show these understandings and these skills. And it sounds like it's kind of opening up the the culture to do that as well. The kind of saying here we again going back to that remix idea of putting these these pieces out there and saying, all right, I don't need total control but I do know what success looks like and I know that I need to build the infrastructure to help people get there. I think that's right. Uh, our, our, um, our board chair and uh, Santiago um, Rincon, who's a great, if folks don't know his work, I'm hoping his dissertation at Harvard will soon get published into a real book. And then I think folks will know his name more. But he, was, he studied in his PhD work at Harvard, um, social movements and transformation has been involved in some really important work in Mexico, getting teachers to um, really take a advocacy place in terms of their, you know, kind of taking a professional stance about teaching and learning. And uh, one of the things he says that I think fits into this is um, there's a time in which we used to think we needed to have the end product completely figured out, like whatever the end state was, we need to know. But what partly is happening around kind of change theory is that the vision of exactly what's going to happen is a little blurry, but what's clear is the value proposition or kind of the attributes of what's got to be true. And so if you say, okay, we know we got to come from a place of partnership. We know it's powerful about young people and communities, and we know we've got to execute well, and we know the DNA of those ingredients and what we're trying to cause – we can actually release to the blurry space a little bit of the vision of what's going to happen. And that actually invites the kind of creative remixing and ownership of folks without kind of just like laissez-faire kind of, you know, whatever happens, happens uh, kind of space. Well, and it and, sounds uh, also really against the more contemporary idea of branding, um, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, a McDonald's wouldn't say, all right, here are the ideas behind a McDonald's. Um, right. Go on in, and uh, you, you want to buy a franchise. These are the these are the tenants. These are the things to uh, to which we uh, ascribe. Now go ahead and build your McDonald's. Oh, it looks completely different than all the other McDonald's, but you know what? You, you got close, right? I mean, that wouldn't that well, wouldn't no, be a and thing. I, I don't think you know. And to be you know cold about it, like I don't think Pearson would either. I think right. that the difference is that when when idea is not, and I you know I can appreciate the need. The brand idea, if, if I was selling a widget or selling a textbook or selling a thing and that was my business, you know, you, there's a reason to want to be trusted as a brand. Not that, I, you know, <laughs> there, there are brands I would want to trust and brands I'd avoid, but I, I can understand the need for an identity around that. If idea 
wants to have a brand. It wants to be around learning and values and, and movement building. We're just not, we're not, we see it as if the goal is to build collaboration and strategy and partnership with a certain value set, that's best evidenced when we're not at the front of the story. Um, the the hero of the story is young people and teachers and educators and community leaders and if that's the story people are paying attention to and not you know me or ideas a brand then then we're doing something right and uh and so the idea that mission hill and the teachers and young people there are what everyone's talking and writing about is exactly the kind of thing we want to be happening so what are what are those those kind of key principles uh that idea is trying to foster what are, what are the things that you hope people are walking away very specifically thinking about as far as education? Yeah. Um, that every – all students, all students uh, uh, can, should, need, <laughs> and have the capacity to be meaningfully engaged in their learning. And that um, – that's one. Two, that that's happening in powerful ways in places around the country and in places that are getting the right tension between um, a kind of socially just access to powerful information to be able to navigate the world kind of as it currently is and the kind of creativity to play um, with a world that we're not quite sure where it's headed. Um, I think that part of that commitment is then also thinking about the role of parents and families in communities and what we mean by public education. So the um, idea of, of really at this kind of shaky period of time, which is our analysis, that the sense of public, real genuine public ownership of public education. Um, we use the word public education to often mean kind of traditional schools. And what we're really thinking about is is the public. There are traditional schools uh, that I think are powerfully owned by the public, something like PS28 in New York or um, the um, – trying to remember the school in Texas I was recently engaged with, where the whole fabric of the school is being responsive to the young people and the parents and families and teachers. I will, can, um, we, yeah. can we stop there for a second? Because like, yeah. there's a piece of Mission Hill that is, I mean, and Sam has been gracious and, and let me do some writing on this um, in the in the Ed Week space. Um, and it's a place that I haven't been able to get any of the pieces that I've, write, I've written yet. But it has to do, it strikes me as very much run by adults, or at least that's the narrative that I'm getting from the episodes. Mission Hill. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and kind of the adults are doing the planning and then the kids are kind of fit into it and still involved kind of much more richly and deeply in conversations about education than I would find in, a, sadly, many, many schools. But at the same time, it, it doesn't feel necessarily that those conversations are owned by the students, or at least, and again, this is kind of the, the limit of a narrative structure, at least in the, in the episodes that we see. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. It, and is that a fair understanding? Is that, I mean, how does that, how does that pull through? Or maybe is that a piece where we would say, kind of, we, we're showing Mission Hill as a good idea, not as the perfect and he and this is in fact a place where some growth could happen right um 
Man, that's a lot. Uh, uh, <laughs> I try to go with the little questions for my brain. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah, I noticed the pattern. Um, let's see the um, so so first of all, like, I, I don't think any school, and I think Mission Hill, and and you'll see Chapter Ten this week. Uh, Ayla, the principal, there's a really powerful moment in Chapter Ten where she says this, like. Uh, schools are human places and the idea that we would lift anyone up and say we should, you know, like it speaks for everything or holds every edge. And so I think, you know, Mission Hill is a really good place and in no way should every place be like it. And, um, and, and, and there's all kinds of, you know, kind of edges. I think your analysis is, is there's a degree of that that's on track and a degree that maybe is partly kind of narrative. I mean, I think, the the distinctions of what do we mean by meaningful kind of engagement of young people lives in this bandwidth, right, between kind of full curriculum and governance ownership and even shared writing of teacher contracts and evaluations, which I, I know of middle and high schools that can do quite powerfully. And I also know middle and high schools that say they do that and it's done in pretty traumatic and problematic ways. Um, and we live with idea in this kind of nuancy space of um, it's going to look different in different places. There's a continuum and there's not even a necessarily a right answer like that the far end of the continuum isn't always that uh, every student deciding what they do all day long or that they're deciding how everything works in each classroom. There's a place for, I think, kind of what I talk about as kind of healthy adult authority. Mission Hill is a place that's rooted in Deborah Meyer's work in philosophy, and that work is very much around that adults are powerful, responsible people who role model the habits they they want young people to have, but that they take up that responsibility. And as a kind of K-8 school and a place, um, you know, in my visit there, what I saw was young people really engaged in their learning, um, but not super uh, engaged in terms of the processes of running the school. And I don't know, you know, I, I'm a little these days probably more. I used to not be so agnostic about that. Um, I used to be quite an activist for the young people running the school. But I, it's hard to say what the right answer is there. I could, you know, go all over the map philosophically. And so, is there room for growth there? Maybe. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure if we asked teachers and, and, and staff at Mission Hill, they'd have really interesting ideas about that. Um, at the same time, I think it's just hard to capture in little five-minute windows right. well, the degree then, of ownership or understanding that exists. And I think there is there's something to be said. I mean, Dewey would say, you know, there are people who have the more mature knowledge, and, and the kids don't necessarily have that more mature knowledge, and, and so maybe they're not ready for that, or, or maybe that moves you away from the mission. Um, and then I was at the the DML conference a couple of months ago in Chicago, and I was in a a piece on uh, democratic government and and kind of open sourcing and and all of these pieces. And there was a question from the audience of couldn't we just crowdsource this policy? And uh, one of one of the panelists said well, I, we could, but is that the best idea? Mm. Um, and she was on a panel and she pointed to two of the other experts and she said, these are, these are two people who are pretty brilliant in their field. I would much rather rely on their expertise. Like there's a reason there are experts and they are of value. Um, 
So even even though I posed the question of like where are the kids in all of this, um, I think I I think I probably would say I vacillate back and forth as kind of oh yes I mean, I think, the kids should be doing this or at the same time oh but let's not forget there is there is power in in knowing what has happened and having that institutional memory. To me, it's the the interesting learning environments are places where this is a constant wrestling and right. everything's everything's in the tension between them right. right. Where I see this in my own parenting of my own children, right? Like I don't put sugar in front of my three-year-old when they can crawl and say, like, "Do you want to check out the sugar? Do you right. think that that's a good?" Let me idea? count on. Let me count like, on the bellyache that happens see, later. Like, she's she's practicing her personal agency and she'll decide <laughs> for herself when she consumes too much sugar. And if she vomits, that's a powerful experiential educational. You know, like I don't right. do that. I go like, "Sugar's going to kill her, and it's not a good idea." And I keep her from it. Even if she cries, I just hold her closer when she does it. But make that something. Something less complex, less you know, sure, and suddenly gets to be a more interesting thing. Like, do I let her down? How much do I follow? And I think this is the, you know, and this place of what do we, how do we think about personalized learning versus community values versus being of relevance and really mattering in terms of like, I think a lot about um, if you have sixteen-year-olds in a classroom and they're all engaged in technology and they're all following their own path. But on the other side of the hill of their school is abject poverty and a river that is uh, is polluted. Uh, is the school of any value if the kids are inside geeking out on their personalized learning but unaware and not actively engaged in solving the community problems in their block? Mm-hmm. And is it wrong then for the adults to point them towards those problems and to solve them? And like just the the engagement. So to me, it's it's like the most interesting environments are are at the edges of these questions and the tensions between them. Right, and then and I mean, it also to even to ask that question is to create a, a bit of a false dichotomy that you don't need one or the other, but that right student right. voice comes comes and goes up and down. There in Sam's American schools, I think that was the the school that was part of the last case study where the kids had the involvement in those kind of conversations, but they weren't setting the the, the kind of basic agenda. Um, right. right? They, the, the adults said, Oh no, this is the way the school's going to operate. But on a day to day level, we're going to invite students to, to participate in these conversations. And I think part of the, the reminder there is as far as schools go, uh, is that the students are going to leave, right? <laughs> so the decisions they're making, they might make would be based from a place of like, I'm out of here in four years versus the adults who are saying, no, we need to operate for about a hundred years. So. <laughs> well, and yeah, and you've got all the, you know, the, 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 the value proposition in the cultures that are, are, are currently held. And you have this, I think like if you're listening and responsive to your students, there's times where even big arc things about a hundred years in a legacy, students have powerful insight and input. And times in which they might have something very strong to contribute, and there are other times in which, and so, um, you know, to me, this is like this is what the profession is: is what are the values and structures and policies and practices of teachers as artists and principals as artists, and what is the ways in which they're responding with students as alive, real humans in front of them, and how that interaction goes down and how you play with it in real time. Um, you know, that's, that's what it's about. And then, you know, our, what I'm interested in is how do you foment conditions 
that allow and support that to happen rather than conditions in which we're flattening schools out into simplistic structures where uh, we're taking away teachers' autonomy, where we've got kids sitting still 35 deep, facing forward, taking multiple choice tests um, without access to the most relevant information. Um, and so, you know, we're definitely like my focus very much on kind of how the, what's happening in local communities adds up to a macro level picture to a big story and how do we actually, you know, what, what can we actually do to change that story? What kind of organizing work and policy work and networking and narrative work does it take to, to change that picture? That's a pretty easy job. It sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> The good news guys, is I'm not doing it by myself. You guys are about done, right? Yeah, right. Well, well I'll let you know. <laughs> um, so switching gears completely, yeah. um, and this is really more selfish. This is one of the more selfish questions I get to ask is, what have you been reading lately? Mm. <laughs> That's a funny question. Uh, see, the thing's immediately on me. No cheating here. Uh, the, what I what I just finished reading actually is, um, the. I don't know if you've seen them, the book's divergent and insurgent. Uh, so, uh, that's actually the last thing I read. These are youth adolescent fiction books that my 15 year old son and wife read and encouraged me to read. And they're, um, it's a dystopian set of books and I okay. highly recommend them. Actually, I really enjoyed them on the, on the education side. Um, I, um, I've been reading um, – I just got a copy actually because I met with her of J. Love Calderon's Occupying Privilege, uh, Conversations on Love, Rape, and Liberation. And um, I'm a couple of, of chapters into that and really uh, enjoying that effort. Um, and then I've been reading uh, – I'm rereading actually Vincent Harding's uh, Martin Luther King, The Inconvenient Hero, which if folks don't know is a fantastic book about – Dr. King post I Have a Dream and the ways in which we kind of cut off the history of Dr. King at that moment and kind of forget what happened next around his embrace of, of – or his, his fighting against deep poverty and his fighting against the war in Vietnam because the moral uh, commitment and the ways in which not just white folks but black folks – abandoned King during some of those struggles are harder to confront and have deep lessons for us in today's world. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Vincent Harding, and this is a really powerful book. And I just recently went back to it because I felt like I needed to kind of take another dive at it. So, Well, let me go back to Divergent first. Okay. <laughs> Where does it, how does it, how does it stack up? Good, bad? Good, good. I'm a fan. Of course, you know, I used to teach middle school and I love like youth adolescent literature. So I'm an easy target. But um, I put it right there with the Hunger Games series. Okay. Uh, I, it, it's only two thirds of the way through. So I'm waiting, you know, book three comes out in October. Allegiant. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, but I'm, yeah, I. I found my, my, my partner Holly was like, I was on the bus last night and I was placing everybody into their factions and I was just cracking up. Um, I really liked it. I, I even, I had to get a blood test done recently. And as they were putting the needle in me, all I could think about was I was glad it was going in my arm and not in my neck. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think that's a good thought to have with or without a book. It's no, I, I totally, I totally loved it. Um, I, totally I, I just finished uh, uh, Foundation. The Isaac oh. Asimov book. 
Yeah. Um, I tried it when I was much younger and started with the prequel because it just made sense. Um, but then as I tried to read the prequel, it didn't make sense <laughs> because it turned out I needed all the knowledge of the books that happened after that. And that didn't make sense to me. So I just put them all down. <laughs> You're a brave man. Um, <laughs> I, think I, read, I think I read half a foundation when I was like 17. Yeah. And- I my my I never I never went back. I never you should go back. back. Um, <laughs> All right. <laughs> I breezed through it in a day and uh, just totally totally loved it. So interesting. All right, that's um, a good, Rick. But uh, I I have not heard of this. Uh, I've not heard of the Inconvenient Hero. So yeah, yeah. I'll put that on my on my list as well. Do you find yourself kind of more embedded in fiction or in nonfiction or a good blend? I'm mostly, no, I'm mostly nonfiction. It's a treat, actually. It's an interesting timing. Um, I'd say probably, you know, honestly, like once or twice a year. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm more embedded. I'm actually, I get a good chunk of poetry, um, particularly interested in Neruda. Um, but, uh, I get a little poetry. I, I get a good chunk of kind of. I'm actually very into like a uh, whole fusion of like kind of uh, you know Taoist literature and Buddhist philosophy. Um, not that I practice any of those, but I I find something in them that that is helpful. Um, but yeah, I'm mostly you know some fusion of like Seth Godin, Chip and Dan Heath, like fierce business business kind of execution kind of books, deep social justice books and like what's going on with education. Like at some intersection, I'm I'm typically kind of rotating around those patterns. Well I almost I almost uh, referenced Heath's uh made the stick when we were talking originally about the uh yeah the Mission Hill ideas because it just sounds like, oh there's a, there's some stickiness in some pieces of these and, and how do you find that and, and replicate it. Um how do you find interesting that you say poetry? Uh, how do you find poetry kind of influencing your work or your approach to the work? Because I think there's, you know, this idea of a, of a balanced reading diet. Um, not as a not as like a named concept. Okay, um, but it is it's, it kind of is as it sounds, and then this idea of not just reading one type of book or another type of book specifically as, as a classroom teacher, but kind of giving kids yeah. and yourself access to, to lots of different kinds. So I would just wonder, do you, do you feel like your, your reading of poetry influences the way you approach your work? Yeah, definitely. I'm a, um, you might know Maurice Gibbons work around self-design. If you don't, that's a fun person to chase down, but I had a chance to meet with him several years ago and he told me that, any good change work is like research and poetry. Um, and I love that line and I think about it a lot. Um, cause to me, that's what we're, we have to find the balance of as a society, like the moves in a kind of, in the, in the good sense of the word accountability and thinking about how we move things powerfully. It's, you know, it's, it's, it is research and it is about depth of practice, but it's also poetry. And sometimes I think we forget that art. And I, I find in poetry, ways to hold complexity and emotion and humor and capture things in ways that you can't get in narrative. There's a kind of, it's like that. There's some Japanese form of poetry. I think it's, there's a really beautiful name for it. I don't know. It's about um, the, it's like you make as few strokes on a page as possible and you use the white space in between 
to create the image. I think people refer. I think the like generic like U.S. way to talk about it's like Japanese brush painting, but there's science, some beautiful practice. But to me, poetry is like that. It's like what what can be learned in the space between words and the pauses and most of the hard moments in my own life where there's been the deepest pain or tragedy or challenge. Um, both I've turned to writing poetry and I've turned to read poetry as ways to navigate. And so for me, it's a, it's just a source. And it's, it's also my, my, the, the idea work is so, you know, intellectual, it's both intellectual and emotional, but it's very full. And the poetry is a nice release and a way to kind of stay grounded and make sense and find a sense of humor about things, uh, doing, doing all this work. Haiga. There you go. Thank you, internet. Um, <laughs> that's, that's really interesting. And, and do you find that you're also writing poetry or is this more of a kind of consumption in the production that takes place in other <laughs> ways? I just got, I can't lie to you, Zach Chase. I do, <laughs> I do, but I don't, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I, I, my, my, if, if any of my former middle school students were listening to me, they could call me a giant hypocrite. I don't, I don't share much of my poetry. Um, but I, I do write a pretty good amount. I'm, I would say, well, I mean, not, I'm not a prolific in any such. I'd say probably, you know, two or three finished things, uh, finish for me <laughs> things uh every month or two and then a lot of like you know stream of consciousness raw trying to kind of make sense of things but um i think it's therapeutic for me it's not something i have taken to as trying to kind of publish or share although uh, yeah so i say that all kind of nervously <laughs> no I'm, this is not leading to me saying why don't you read me some of your work <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. why don't you share some with, with yeah no, i'm not gonna read <laughs> No, I, I just think it's it's really interesting, and I don't. I know we, you and I have talked about the National Writing Project before, but um, it's one of those pieces that interests me is is uh, the idea of people in education writing and sitting down to kind of thoughtfully taking that pause to write. And uh, I think poetry opens up some doors that more journaling and other pieces like that don't necessarily open up. Yeah. Um, Gives you, which gives you, I think, a blend of the fiction and the nonfiction because it's the the spaces in between what you're saying are where the imagination probably happens the most. Yeah. Well, Scott Nine, we have uh, reached the end of <laughs> end of our podcast. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was super fun. Uh, I need you all around more often to ask me hard questions. I really enjoyed. <laughs> I really enjoyed the whole thing and uh, a pleasure. Great. Thanks a bunch. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase. Our intro and outro music comes from New Dance Boys Mission, and it's called Intro. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Learning Grounds is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. I dare you to say it three times fast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.